Man, that sounded beautiful. One thing I forgot to mention, our session recently uh, approved to give roughly 10% of our uh, budgeted uh, income toward uh, our church planning efforts in, in, the, uh, the, in the denomination the Presbytery. So we're, we're uh, thankful and glad to be able to do that. And thank the Lord for that, too. Wanted to mention that. Uh, now that if you would take your Bibles, turn with us to Romans 12, 1 through 2. We're going to read 1 for context and 2 for our scripture text today. So let's read it together. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, in Romans 12, verse 1, last week, we saw the furthering of God's theme. That God's grace to his people in the gospel, in light of the present reality for believers, which is Romans 1, 18 through the end of chapter 11. That's a present reality. In light of that, we are to completely devote ourselves to him, our Savior. In light of his mercies, we're going to completely devote ourselves to serving Jesus Christ. He used a novel concept that we're living sacrifices. Now, a sacrifice never was thought of as living. A sacrifice is one that is killed and burned. Uh, but we are not consumed because the one who is the true sacrifice, was consumed as he bore the wrath for our sins, as he bore our sins. He paid it all. Therefore, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. He died the death that we didn't think we couldn't die for us. And so the question that's left for us now is not what must we do. We see that we must offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. We heard that last time, but how are we to do it? How does that work? Verse 2 picks up on that theme. And so we're going to see two very specific commands or imperatives in verse 2. And I want you to look at those with me. As you see here, to break it down, these are going to be like the South and North Pole here. We've got uh, a negative first and a positive. Uh, a do not and a do. There's an old Twitter account that I used to follow called Eat This and Not That. It's, often we, always know, we already know what we shouldn't eat. But it's nice to have a little substitute of what you should eat too, right? Something, here's, a, here's a bad option, here's a good option. So we're going to look at the bad option and the good option. The first thing in the text in verse 2 that you need to see is that he's appealing to you to offer your body's living sacrifice, not being conformed to this world. That's the first thing. It's a negative. That's the negative imperative. Not being conformed, but being transformed is the second one. So we're going to, so not being conformed. We're going to cast off one thing and put on another. We're going to put off and put on. We're going to evaluate everything in our lives as if they're ships. Where are we going? Do we need to abandon ship or are we need to get on that as a rescue boat? We need to think about where is everything in our life taking us and cast off the old way of the world, no longer being conformed to that, but being transformed by the new of our minds. We're to, we're to spot the signs of that. And respond. You see the same train to be taking us to freedom or to a concentration camp, right? It's a train. 
we got to look at the signs and saying, where is this taking us? Is there grave danger here? Is there blessing here in this or not? What is this world that I'm no longer to be conformed to? That's a hugely important question. What do I need to be looking for? As you look at that first part of verse 2, uh, there's a, there's that, that, that positive or that negative, it centers on our minds. It says, uh, as the second uh, phrase says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Well, it, it would make sense that the first, the negative, would have something to do with our minds. The transformation has to do with our minds. So the negative of do not be conformed to the world, no longer be conformed to the world, that would, that would include the corruption of our minds. Our minds being corrupted in the world. Uh, there was a 30-second commercial back in the 1980s that I, I just, it, stuck, it sticks with you. There's, it's, it starts out with a man in a kitchen. He's, you know, white man, balding. He looks at the camera forthrightly and he says, I don't know if you've heard this yet. Perhaps you haven't heard this yet, but let me just recap for you. He takes an egg off of the counter in his kitchen. And he says, this is your brain. And on the stove, there is an iron skillet that's been preheated. And he says, he throws it in the skillet. He cracks it, throws it in the skillet. He says, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Your brain on drugs is like a fried egg, right? This is a very sobering image of destruction, of chaos, of fried brain. And that's what, in essence... The Apostle Paul wants us to know any questions when you think of the world. The world here is not the earth and the stars and heavens, but the world here used in this sense is the age. Right? The actual word there in the Greek is age. And this age that we're living in in this current time involves the rebellion against God. We've all rebelled against him. That's the age we live in, the worldly age, right? This world's age. Okay. So, in other words, don't fry your brains, kids. Right? Right? Okay. So, in light of the two imperatives, we're thinking about our minds no longer conforming our minds. When we think of minds today, we think of brains. Right? I, just, I thought of a commercial about brains. Right? But when we're talking about that in the scriptures, the Hebrews actually had no word for brain. Right? So, they, they used uh, words like... Uh, words for heart, words for soul, words for mind, and, and the, the mind and heart, and they all kind of went together as the seat of the person. Heart's a bigger category, but, but the idea is uh, that, that this is where your consciousness, your thought, your will, your affections, your purposes, your imaginations reside. Your mind is the center of who you are as a person. It's what you think about, what you dream about, what you do, who you are, right? Renew your mind, not after the pattern of the world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. So the first imperative is negative. Don't let your mind be conformed to that pattern of the world. Your mind can become like the fray, is, is become like the fried egg by nature. It's corrupted. Now, that's a, that's a huge point. I don't want to pass by that. Do you actually believe that you start from day one with a corrupted mind? That your mind is against God? That's where you begin. That's what David said in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in sin. In my mother's womb, I was a sinner. I am connected to Adam. He knew the story. We've, been for, we've forgotten that story. 
We don't know we don't know about covenants. We don't think about the covenantal nature of our representative. We are sin bearers. We are sinners. We are sin, and then we're corrupted. Your mind's like the Friday by nature. You once were in this world, Christians, molded to be anti-God in your purpose. That was your purpose. You were molded into his, into his enemies from the very first instance of your life. You bear similarities, though, according to your, the first Adam, Adam, our first father, in this. Adam was made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness after the image of God. It says in Romans, I mean, not Romans, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, that God made man and, a man and woman, male and female, after his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And in, in the gospel, it says again in Colossians 3.20 and Ephesians 4.24 that you put on Christ now and renewed in the image of Christ in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. What was lost, it was originally yours, is not yours anymore, but it's gifted back to you in Christ and so you put it on. You put on the image of God, but, the, but in your mind at day zero and on and on, you have a corruption of your mind, a worldly, this age corruption of your mind that does not acknowledge God is knowledge. It does not acknowledge that God is righteous. It does not acknowledge that God is holiness. And we create our own images of that. Paul and elsewhere in Galatians 1.4 says that in this present evil age, right? That's where Christ is coming to, this present evil age. That's where the gospel enters into. We're born into a revolution, a revolution against God. And in Christ, we have been brought into a revolution against the revolution, against God. We're double agents. We're, we're, we're against this revolution. We live in it, though. And so he says there, no longer conform your mind to this world. Do you realize that you're being formed? You're being discipled, if you will, into one end or another, into hatred of God or love of God. There are no renegade molecules, as they say, right? So as you think about this, God is the potter, as we saw in Romans 9. We're all pottery built for either noble or ignoble uses, right? Clearly, we are being formed. We are not our sovereign uh, the sovereign Lord of the universe. We exist for certain mother, by certain mother and father in certain places with certain experiences. And God is governing each and every one of those things. And he's forming us for either noble or ignoble uses. Everything in our lives is no coincidence. It's no accident. God's sovereignly governing, sustaining, and his providence is governing every single molecule. Everything you see on the internet is governed by God. It is not the algorithm of Facebook that governs it. It is not the algorithm of Google. You know where those kings came from? God is governing it. That's what we're calling it. But God is guiding by the potter the things that are going as the potter, guiding those things. Let that sink in. The world thinks things are arbitrary, random, or gives it secondary causes ultimacy. But we give, as those are in Christ, God the ultimacy. And he uses the means. Romans 1, 18 through 23 makes it clear that we all know God. We all engage in God knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but we suppress it. 
We live in it. That's where we all live. We live underneath this because we're all image bearers still. We know it. But our pattern from our birth is suppression of God's righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. For instance, the spirit of the world in this age denies that we are vessels of pottery or creation at all. The spirit of the age maintains that, that, that we deny any accountability to a God. And we still want to maintain some sort of order or ethic. It, and it's completely arbitrary or capricious. Let me tell you this. Like, I, I get so uh, tickled at watching sports news. And, and we, get our, we get our discipleship from Stephen A. Smith. He wants to tell us why Kyrie Irving is bad. What he's doing is wrong. And what he's doing. And so, like, but on what basis? Like, the, the sentence before that, he's, like, saying, hey, just, like, acknowledge whatever's in you. You know, whatever, like, what's, whatever's, like, what's, like, the view tells us this stuff. Like, look within you. But then they'll be outraged at something someone else has done and try to impose an external standard on them. It's completely arbitrary and incoherent to talk about ethics when we don't believe in a revealed standard from God. That God is knowledge, righteousness, and wisdom, and holiness. That he is the standard. So we want to we poke and blame other people, but then we want to you know, justify what we believe inside as absolutely unquestionable and right. And everybody else needs to follow what we say. That's a terrible world to be in. That's absurdity. With no objective on there should not be there should be no uh, sexual ethics, right? That's what they tell us. No sexual ethics. But then they want to judge people for egregious offenses like wife beating, pedophilia, incest. But there's no objective standard, right? You can't tell me who I can love, who I can, what I can, how I can relate. But I want to arbitrarily focus on some areas and tell you you must accept these things but then judge if you, if you betray some standard. People want to tell us that the Supreme Court shouldn't overturn Roe versus Wade. Or it should, but on what basis? What basis do you have to say what the Supreme Court should or should not be doing? A majority of Christians feel this, that, or the other thing. Is that the reason? The news will present the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. But here's what a majority of people actually say in a poll. So, evidentially, you're supposed to understand then that, well, the Supreme Court was working unethically there. They were wrong because the majority said this. What kind of standard is that? At one time, there was a majority of people who believed that Jews were subhuman and should be sent to concentration camps. That was a real country. That was a real existence. That was a real majority. Uh, we have the picture, next picture on the, on the slide. Okay. This is a well-known meme. From, I, I occasionally I'll produce a meme or a picture on the sermon. This is one of those rare instances. In 2013, this, this picture, this image was going around. This is a man named, uh, oh, uh, his first name is August. Uh, August. And he, uh, August Landmesser. He was working at a shipyard, 1936. Suddenly, Hitler shows up and commissions this place. And there's... Thousands of people there in that crowd, and they have to salute Hitler. You see one guy at the very top with a circle on it. Everyone else is doing the salute sign, the Nazi sign, but that one guy is not. Have you seen this before? He's circled and highlighted on that picture. 
It's incredible. He's the only one in a sea of faces not doing the salute toward Hitler. They, the man's name, August Landmesser, why is he not doing that? Well, six years earlier, he fell in love and married a Jewish woman, Iris. They had two children. First, they were not allowed to marry because of the laws. They eventually did secretly get married. And then the same people who, uh, you know, these, these guys right here are going along with their leader, telling them, here's what you need to do. And they're going to become the people who, you know, sell out Corey Ten Boom, gas people like, like this man's wife, because they're being conformed to a pattern externally imposed upon them, right? By their leader. Now, we all have leaders, we all have authorities in this world and people telling us what we need to do and what we shouldn't do. Uh, the question is, where is the right authority? Where can we trust it? Well, God is knowledge, holiness. He is righteousness. We look to God to determine those things. Not to conservative values or liberal values or whatever it is, but God is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And we're made after his image to reflect him. That's our calling is to reflect who he is in all of his ways, not what someone tells us to do on the television or in a book we read. But God himself, that famous photograph pictures it well. One guy standing up and saying, wait a minute, this is not okay. Now let's take the foot off the gas here. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, harrowing illustration, right? Let's think about this. Let's go to a much more lighter scenario. In the first Star Wars movie, Obi-Wan, Han Solo, Chewbacca, and Luke Skywalker board the Death Star. They board the Death Star in order to save Princess Leia. And so they find her in her cell, they, they, Luke gets her out, but then they're chased by thousands of stormtroopers. And they have to find a way out, they're trapped. So they, they, they blow a hole in a wall and they, they, they sail down a chute, which leads them to a trash smasher, right? They're in a worse position than before, but they're safe from the stormtroopers from the moment. All of a sudden, Princess Leia notices, hey, the walls are closing in, you know, and there's terror. She's like, stop, do, like, stop arguing, do something, prop it up, prop the walls, don't let them smash us, we're being trash smashed. I don't know if you noticed this, but the walls are closing in, you know, and there's terror. Luke gets his walkie or his communication device and radios to C-3PO, the droid, help turn off the trash smasher. C-3PO is not there and it takes a while and there's they're about to get smashed to smithereens and flattened. Eventually, C-3PO gets R2-D2 to turn off the trash smashers. He's like, 3PO, help! And so finally they do it. But he, and they start screaming when he finally, when the walls finally open up. And in a comedic moment, C-3PO thinks, oh, they're dying! Oh, they're screaming in terror, they're dying! But he's like, no, 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 we're saved, you did it. Okay, so we're saved. So, that terror moment where you see the walls closing in, that is essentially when we begin as a Christian. We start to see we're being closed in. We're being taken down, taken for a ride on a bad position. And we're being crushed and smothered by the enemy. But what God does is he gives us the spirit, opens our eyes to that reality, and we start to cry out for help. And that's what faith is. Faith is only the, the reaching out for the riches. And we receive the riches of Christ. We receive all the righteousness of Christ 
given to us, all the blood for his sin, for our sins, that's what we receive by faith. We reach out and cry out. And the grace of God will always outrun our sin. Our sin will never outrun that. We are completely secure through the least amount of faith. Hey, help God. Forgive me. Save me. And that is what faith is. But the calling is to be a holy calling. At that point, when you cry out to God the first time, the first time in your life when you say, help me, you are positionally justified and sanctified. You're definitively holy because you're washed, redeemed, and justified, sanctified in Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. But the scripture speaks of being progressively made into the image of Christ over time, which is your progressive sanctification. That's your holy calling. That's your putting off the world and putting on Christ. Those things you're putting on. You're fleeing the old and you're embracing the new age. The old age is gone, the new age to come. You're a new creature, so you live in the new age. As, as first, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, you're a new creation. And we live as new creatures. The progressive sanctification is the work of the mediator Christ sanctifying us over time, incrementally, the whole rest of our days. And for a Christian, that's a joyous thing to engage in. Our Savior loves us. We want to serve him. The, 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 the great doctrine that Martin Luther refuted in the 95 Theses was the doctrine of penance. And he famously responded to that with all of life is repentance. In other words, all of life for you and me is the work of progressive sanctification. That's where we live. We live in the work of progressive sanctification. Embracing the new, putting off the old, putting to death the old. So that leads us to our second imperative. We're to not be conformed to this arbitrariness, this I'm going to determine what's right, and this worldly hatred of God and his authority that he is not righteousness, holiness, and, and knowledge. But I am. I'm the determiner of that. That's what, we're, that's what we say in the world, in this age. I'm going to listen to what Satan had to say, like Adam, and let him tell me what's right and judge it myself. But no, our posture is we're created creatures. We're, we, we are derivative of God. So we look to God to image him as holiness, knowledge, and righteousness. Okay? So the second imperative here is to continue to let yourself be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The verb there is no longer, just like the previous word there, no longer being conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's a passive verb. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? So a passive verb, right, is something that is done to you. You are sanctified by another through the instrumentation of another, you're going to be renewed. You're going to be transformed, implying that what you were previously is corrupted. So we got to remember that, right? Or we're going to put that off. We're going to not be formed into that anymore. We're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's not only negative, right? So when you think about this transgression, it's not only the negative. Like when you think of sin, I need to get rid of all the negative. I need to get, stop the cussing, all the drinking too much, uh, all those things, right? The negative, the, like the pure just transgression of the, of the statements of God, right? But it's also the positive demands. It's the cultivating holiness, right? It's the cultivating of all of the good, righteous knowledge and holiness of God in our lives. 
It's leaving behind the unholy acts, words, and thoughts, but cultivating holiness, righteousness, and knowledge. Because that's what we're made to be. It's a holy calling. We're made, just like Adam, in Christ to embody the righteousness, the knowledge, and the holiness of God. When, when I was a young uh, believer, I'd hear professional Christians try to teach me about the will of God. They would say, you know, hey, don't miss the will of God. You need to be careful to not miss the will of God. What they were saying essentially was that the will of God was this dot. You just sort of had this intuition about it, and God would reveal the signs to you, and you would discover what the will of God is. It's a point. And I think that's, that's not biblical. The biblical statement is this. The will of God is a grid. The will of God is a structure. And you put yourself within that grid. You've got freedom in that grid to cultivate your individual talents and purposes for God. But there is a grid of the will of God that is your directive. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4.2 says, This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. Your progressive holiness. Growing more. Being renewed in the whole man, as the catechism question says. The whole man will take all of our lives, day after day, dying to sin, and rising to righteousness. That's the will of God. You can't miss the will of God. It's revealed. We don't know where we're going to be one day from now, one minute from now, one year from now, 30 years from now. Who knows? But we do know the will of God revealed. And it is the word of God, the statement of holiness, righteousness, and knowledge that God has given us in the scriptures. That's what we have to follow. That's the will of God. The will of God, that can't be missed. We don't know where he's going to take us, but we know this will of God that's been revealed to us. We can allow ourselves to be conformed to the old pattern of the age, the pattern of sin, or we cannot. We can decide to, to follow him and trust him, even when we don't like it. Even when it's not, it's not something we're thinking about is going to be the best for us. And we can trust him. That's faith. That's working our faith out. Being transformed in the holy calling of sanctification. Not giving into temptation cultivating holiness, those kind of things. You are being transformed into what Adam was supposed to be by the work of Christ mediated to you by the Spirit. You're taking off, you're putting on, you're fleeing, you're embracing. So the positive there is like, and what's funny here is this word being transformed, it sounds like metamorphosis, right, in the Greek. It looks like metamorphosis, right? And, and, and there's only, it's only used four times in the New Testament. The first time is in Mark, I mean, it's in Matthew 17, and the second time is in Mark 9, and it's talking about the same story. Do y'all know what that is? Anyone know what Mark 9 talks about? Those of you who had youth Sunday school today, you might know. Mark 9, what story is that? Transfiguration. The transfiguration. This same verb, be transformed, you be transformed is second person plural here in mark 9 the last time we see it we read but several several books several chapters before last time we see it it's used of jesus he was transformed or transfigured right if you look at that text you'll see that after six days jesus took with him peter and james and john and led them up to high mountain by themselves and he was metamorphosized or transfigured before them Transformed before them. His clothes are radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach him. And there before them were Moses and Elijah, and he was t- they were talking with Jesus. 
So you've got resurrection, you've got radiance, you've got wearing the white garments, and that's a glimpse of glory. You've got harmony and fellowship. And so what does Peter want to do? But he wants to create structures and live there, right? That's the moment of transfiguration or, or transformation. I consider that astonishing when you look at, that's the same verb here used in Romans 12 too. This is where Peter wanted to live because he saw it up close. We're like anaholiness. <laughs> I can take care of it. You know, it's like, we, we shouldn't feel that way. If we really understood what we were dealing with here, we'd be like, yes, let's build a structure. Like, let's build a structure right now and stay where Jesus is. I'm a sinner. He's righteous. I want to be where he is. I want to be like him. I want to see that radiance. I want to put on the righteous robes. But you know what? We don't wear righteous robes right now. We wear armor. We put on the armor of God. Right? That's where we are. Ephesians 6, 11. Because we're fighting against sin and the devil. Oh, and so we think, well, the best thing would be is to just, you know, receive more pleasure. But no, it's not always that. It's sometimes it's suffering. Sometimes it's, it's being betrayed so we can forgive, so we can grow in holiness. There's a lot of differences in, in the idea of of goodness in our life, in the world's eyes. But we want to we think about where is Jesus? That's where I want to be. They wanted to build structures. And what God said, no, no, no. The voice of heaven thundered down and said, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to what? Does, he doesn't say anything in that text. What does he say? Well, later, a chapter later, in Mark 10, he makes it clear. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Listen to him. If we stay on the mountain, we won't have the ransom. We will not have this. He must go and, and spill his blood, fulfill all righteousness, that you might dwell with me. That's what's going to happen. And then what he's going to do, he's going to apply that to you. He's going to tell his disciples again. Listen to what he says. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witness to the end of the age from Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you're going to see transformation. These disciples were that close to Jesus for all this time and were very fuzzy, very unclear on what he, who he was and what he's going to do. He keeps telling them, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a ransom and you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send. I'm going to send him and you're going to receive power. It's quite confusing sometimes to talk about sanctification. Justification is simple. It's an act, but this is a work. God does it. He transforms us. He makes us witnesses. He washes us. He sanctifies us. But we continue to work on that transformation. Let yourselves be transformed that you may understand, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So that's our two, two imperatives. Do not be conformed and be transformed. We're going to be transfigured or transformed, continue to be transfigured to shine like the face of Jesus in fellowship, in fellowship with God as he is in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that the Son of Man had. He's going to sanctify us. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, it says God will sanctify us. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God at work in you, both to will and to do. Our progressive being transformed, our sanctification, is by our everyday efforts, but it is God who does it. It's, it sounds parallel and, and, uh, and contradictory, but it is that. Let me give you an example. I discovered an active illustration of this when uh, that we live in the midst of an old age, 
with old ways of thinking, but were to put on the image of Christ. I was watching Grace and Tuck Everlasting. She was cast in a new play. Several weeks ago, she worked on it. She memorized lines. For a brief moment in history, she is not Grace. She's Winnie Foster. She was not Grace Westmoreland for that time. She was putting on Winnie Foster as Grace Westmoreland. Every instinct she had in that time was to be Winnie Foster. And what Grace Westmoreland thinks, acts, speaks, and feels, she's no longer to be conformed to that old age for that time. She's to be conformed to the new age, which is Winnie Foster. How does she think? How does she feel? What does she say? All right? So she performs as Winnie Foster, but she's Grace Westmoreland as Winnie Foster. At this time, we're not yet gloriously transfigured in the image of Christ that we will be, but we are a new man. We're putting on a role. We're playing according to the new age, not the old age, but the new age has come. But we're not there yet. We're putting on Christ. We're trying on Christ. But there's going to be a day in which that play will cease and the reality will become. We will be transfigured like Christ. But we're, we're shining forth now. We're seeing it now. We're doing, we're, we're acting now. We're, we're taking our script and our directions from Christ, right? We're, it's, the word is a script of not, the righteousness, the that holiness, the knowledge of God is the script. And we're playing it out as well as we can as actors, acting as Christ. Hosea was called to marry a harlot as exhortation to Israel to give up their old ways and reform, be transformed by their new, their minds. He was doing that because the role that they had, they were playing was not the role they were given. We're going to live in a world that doesn't think like us. We can't take our native instincts to that and feel like we're going to be okay. We've got to be transformed in the new of our mind because our mind is conformed to the old pattern. We have to learn the script. We have to learn the character. We have to learn Christ. We have to study him and act him. That's how we do it. We're playing the play. God works out his grace in us. We're going to be fully transformed in the image of Christ someday. And now we're playing the game. We're doing progressive sanctification, which is real. And, we're, and the gift is we get to see the will of God, his pleasing, perfect will. We get to see it, and we love it. That's what David spoke about, renewing him, giving him forgiveness so that he might love the law of God, and he did. Now, the standard of being a Christian is higher and more crucial than you ever consent, can ever be. You know, being Jesus is not just adopting a liberal political agenda or a conservative political agenda, Right? It's, it's not just our calling or sanctification. It's not just being a nice citizen or a helpful neighbor or a kind person. Progressive Christianity wants you to, to take Jesus' example and use that as fuel to be less racist, to be more tolerant, to do more political action, to vote different ways. That would glorify Jesus. But the standard is far higher than our political agendas and messaging. The standard of culture is to cancel whatever conflicts with you. But the standard of Christ is to love our enemies and pray for them, right? The standard of the world is to vilify and caricature leaders who disagree with you. Like they'll tell you there's the mean orange man or the senile Joe Biden. You know, they'll make fun of whoever they don't like. And our, tra our transformation is to be willingly paying taxes, showing honor to the office, praying for the leaders. We have a totally different standard. Being a nice person and a good citizen is not enough. We play Christ. We have another higher role, a, a role from this age to come that is here. And the, and the sexual standard of the world is consent. The standard of holiness is purity according to God's designs. The, 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 the script couldn't be any more different. 
in any way you want to think about it. The transformation cannot be accomplished by the world or our means. We cannot do it. The spirit must do it. So our culture has largely embraced a Marxist narrative that says conservative or liberal agendas are going to legislate better and everyone's going to be happier. We're going to give you what you need, right? But we know that's not it. The government doesn't give us rights because God is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He is ruling. He gives us the right. Romans 12.1 says the world tells you you have the right to be crushed. You will be crushed. But Christ was set apart to be crushed for you. That's the gospel. You can choose, do you want to be crushed or do you want Christ to be crushed for you? And you can be transformed. You've got to rethink everything you thought you knew. How dreadful would it be for you to be somebody who never thought he or she was wrong and, to, and somebody to live with you like that? If you never question any of your motives, how dreadful would that be? What this teaches is we have to question everything we've ever thought that we think, when we think we're right. We have to think about that. If we don't have God's agenda governing us, have we taken on worldly standards of holiness, worldly standards of, of righteousness, and worldly standards of knowledge? How dreadful would it be to be with somebody who always knows best? The transformed mind says, like Proverbs 2.6, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. We have to know that the Lord will give us these things. So practical tips. Okay, a few things. Number one, prepare for the preaching of God's word. Each and every week, prepare. Pray. It's six days away. Help me prepare. Five days, four days, three days, two days, one day. Prepare me. Count down the days. Be mindful of the days. And be ready to receive what the Lord sends to you that day. Be ready. Prepare. That's where God speaks. He promises to speak through the preaching of the word. Number two, understand the sacraments are not automatic. They're not mechanical. They're not magical. They require us to receive it through faith. That means thinking, using our minds. We, we wrestle with it. We discern the body of Christ, whether we're in it. In the same way, God graciously, mercifully works it out. He nourishes us through that. When we, faith, by faith, receive it. We receive the preaching, the sacraments, by faith. We feed on Christ. We drink of him because we're weak and he nourishes us. We have to internalize that. It's not automatic. We confess our sins to God and we hear the gospel. We have to prepare our minds for these things. We have to think we're not always right. In fact, we're a lot of times wrong. That's why we have Christ. We have to have ears to hear the gospel. We need to ask for those. A lot of us have been playing the wrong role. We're playing a role that's been taught to us outside of Scripture. We have to repent and play the role that we've been given. Consider how, how well Grace would do playing Winnie Foster if she never read the script. Just become Grace. Grace part two. And what about every other, every other actor in the play just became themselves? It would be chaos. What they were prior to being cast. How chaotic would that be? That's our world. People being what they are natively when they're supposed to be called as image bearers, bearing knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. That's not, we're, that's not the game we're playing. That's not the role we're playing. And that's the devastation of our world. Ephesians 6 tells us we're putting on armor because we're in a fight for that. The final place we see 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. We see this word metamorphosis or transformation in that role. It says, now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord being transformed. Again, the metamorphosis word into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Thank the Lord that we put on armor that he has worn to save us. When we put on that armor of God, he's already, he's already destroyed the devil. And the spirit gives us freedom. And we're free to play this role. And God uses these poor works, poor efforts, so, so weak. And he does great things. That's your encouragement this morning. God uses your renewing your mind, leaving the old ways to bring about Christ in you. From degree of glory to glory until the end. Let's pray. Our God, help us. Bring us good news. Help your law and your righteous plan, your holiness, to be a good thing that we desire. Instead of being tricked into the patterns of the world, which says your ways are, are not to be trusted. Lord, we ask that you would uh, protect us from lies and give us uh, your truth to direct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go, Lord.